You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. It's very easy to make God into a personality like ourselves, writ large, with likes and dislikes similar to our own, and therefore make him endorse all our particular prejudices. So we can make God into a, a Republican, or a Democrat, or even a racist. Renowned religion scholar Karen Armstrong. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Who is God? Who is the all-knowing, all-powerful deity who, despite having different names, is at the center of every religion. Well, a former Roman Catholic nun, who is now one of the world's most renowned religious scholars, Karen Armstrong, set out to find the answers. In 1994, she wrote a book called A History of God. And that's when I first met her, but this was just the first of several conversations that she and I had over the next few years. So here now, from 1994... Karen Armstrong. It's occurred to me that we had histories of so many aspects of religion, a history of women and Islam, a history of politics and religion, a history of Christianity and warfare, but nothing about the history of the idea and experience of God, the center of the religious quest. And I'd just been uh, writing a book about the Crusades and the problems in the modern, modern Middle East today, which dwelt on the very hostile relations that have existed between the three monotheistic religions. And I thought it might be interesting and profitable, really, to dwell on what would unite them. And whatever their superficial dis- differences, I expected them to be one about God. And indeed, I found an extraordinary unanimity between the three religions. Time and time again, uh, Jews, Christians, and Muslims working in isolation from one another very often, and often, as we've seen, in a state of deadly hostility, have asked the same questions about God and have evolved very, very similar solutions. Is this something that has to do with the nature of humankind, that we just, there's something in us that will gravitate toward that answer, or is there a single God? Well, um, I think that there, that when human beings confront ultimate questions, we go through remarkably similar scenarios in our minds, hearts, and imaginations. Uh, now, our ideas of God, and this was something that was really brought home to me in a big way while I was researching this book, our ideas about God are not to be confused with the absolute transcendent reality itself. Um, and this has been stressed endlessly by Jews, Christians, and Muslims, some of the most eminent of all. Uh, our ideas are man-made. Maybe even someone like St. Thomas Aquinas insisted on this, that our doctrines are imperfect approximations to something that we've glimpsed, uh, whereas the reality that men and women have experienced um, from the dawn of history and are called by different names, Nirvana, Brahman, or God, uh, that 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 it goes beyond anything that we can really conceive or express. I hadn't really given it a great deal of thought before I read your book that there are, it appears, more than one God mentioned even even within the first five books of the Old Testament. Well, uh, the first people we read about in, in the Bible, people like Abraham or Moses or King David, weren't really monotheists in our sense of the term. They almost certainly believed that other gods existed but that they would worship only 
Yahweh, only the God of Israel, which was a very eccentric position to take in the pagan world, where the gods were seen as sources of help and inspiration, and why turn down help that was available? And constantly we read in the Bible uh, that the children of Israel were turning to the religions of Canaan and worshipping the ancestral gods of that land. But ultimately, in the about the 8th, 7th, and 6th centuries B.C., uh, the prophets of Israel reformed this ancient religion of God and made Yahweh a symbol of the transcendence we mentioned, something that goes beyond all our words and concepts, and said there was only God, Yahweh was the only God. A, ma- a major step forward, which actually coincided with other major developments in religion in other parts of the world. It was about this time that Buddhism and Hinduism was reforming the old pagan religions of the Indian subcontinent. And in, in the Far East, Taoism and Confucianism arose, uh, all of which have continued to nourish men and women all down the centuries. And in the Middle East, we had monotheism. But it strikes me there's a good number of people um, in, in all three of these faiths that you've examined who would find it uh, rather blasphemous for you to suggest that there are different images, different different conceptions of God. Well, no, because as I say, the, the best monotheists uh, have insisted that our human ideas are, are going to constantly change and, and be renewed, that we mustn't confuse our ideas about God with this absolute reality itself. It's only in the West that we have gone in a slightly different direction from the other monotheistic religions and have and have assumed that when we that that our word god our, the idea god actually corresponds to an objective reality out there um indeed uh they've other monotheists have found different ways of saying that there is no objective god the same for everybody uh that all our idea of god is bound to be subjective uh that's the rabbis who composed the Talmud, uh, the, Jew- the Jewish uh, holy book, says that uh, when God re- revealed the law to Moses on Mount Sinai and appeared amidst the thunder and lightning, all the Israelites standing at the bottom of the mountain experienced God in an entirely different way according to his or her own disposition and personality. And a lot of monotheists have had this idea that we can only get a little glimpse of God. There's a great Sufi mystic, uh, one of my favorites, uh, called Ibn al-Arabi, who was writing in the 12th century, um, a most influential uh, Muslim writer. Now, he said that uh, each one of us uh, is has been has had one of God's names revealed to us that's unique. And this name, as it were, is inscribed deeply in our personalities so that each one of us is a sort of epiphany, a revelation of, of God to the world. But if you think of the multitude of human beings that have existed, this is a reminder to us that one human idea of God isn't enough. Um, and indeed, Ibn al-Arabi says that we'll only encounter that name, that God that has been stood spoken in the depths of our own being and this god will be different from the person next door to us Um, but i don't recall ever sitting in any church protestant or catholic where the clergyman the priest deacon whoever was speaking to us on that particular sunday morning ever said anything approaching like what you just said and neither did i for all my years as a nun hear (laughs) anything like this and it was a wonderful revelation to me when i was researching this book Um, i was in a continuous 
quest of discovery for about three or four years. I'd never known about anything like this, largely because in the Western world, since the time of the Reformation, we've developed a much more objective and scientific, uh, logical, literalistic view of God than the other traditions. We never really had a chance in the West to develop a mystical tradition which approaches God in this much more subjective, mysterious way and sees him as a paradox of mystery beyond our ken. Ever since the 16th century, at the time when we were evolving our own scientific revolution that was going to transform the world and our own culture and other people's culture too, we've tended to apply us those scientific uh, principles, that scientific mentality to God and have therefore seen him, as we see scientific facts, as objective, rationally deductive and take things very literally. Uh, so you can see this split, this divide uh, between the Westerners, West people in Western Europe and other parts of the world. Quite clearly, uh, there's a great Muslim philosopher in the 16th century who was saying that heaven and hell, for example, are interior states different for each one of us, found in our own psychies, in our own spirits. Um, I think not Rod, rather than Rod a, Serling understood that, I think. Rather than a place to which we'll all go after death. But at the same time, in Rome, the great cardinal who became a saint, Robert Bellarmine, was trying to prove, literally, that hell was in the middle of the world, as a, though it were an absolute physical location, with a great deal of painstaking argument. And the discoveries of Galileo, for example, began to disturb Christians, who said, how can Galileo's theory, uh, and Copernicus's theory, how can this cohere with statements in Scripture about the sun rising and setting? So we were starting to develop a very, very literal way of looking at God, looking at Bi the Bible, which was different from the much more symbolic approach of the other religions. And in this I include Greek and Russian orthodoxy, which we tend in a rather chauvinistic way to neglect in the West and assume that all Christianity is Western. But in fact, Greeks and Westerners have evolved very different conceptions of God. Uh, Greeks would say that any authentic statement about God has to be characterized by two things. First, by paradox second by silence, to remind us that we've come absolutely to the end of what is, it's possible to speak or to think. After this short break, Karen Armstrong on what happens when we try to make God in our image. Now back to my 1994 conversation with Karen Armstrong. But it strikes me that the clergy is faced with a paradox as well, because you've got to lead the flock, as it were, but you, how can you lead them if each one of them is being spoken to in a different way? We're too concerned with organizing and leading people, and we particularly got hung up on the idea that faith means believing things, accepting certain religious opinions. Now, in Judaism and Islam, um, God doesn't reveal himself as a set of doctrines. God is experienced as a moral imperative that drives us to live in a certain way and that by living in a compassionate way, by observing the Muslim or Jewish law in the tiniest details of daily life, uh, people have found that they gain a glimpse of the reality that we call God so that instead of stressing orthodoxy, that is right teaching, like Western Christians, we tend to stress, the, the Jews and the Muslims tend to stress orthopraxy, which is uniformity of practice. And Muslims, for example, um, whereas Christians 
our doc, our divisions in Christianity are based on doctrine, on quite obscure doctrinal differences, like are you saved by works or by merit, or how do you regard the Eucharist, quite abstruse points. Uh, that's not so in, say, the Muslim world, where the only difference between the Shia and the Sunni uh, Muslims is that they uh, have a political difference about how the Muslim community should be led and organized. Sometimes a very bloody political difference, but that's... Uh, well, that's... We, we in the West have been, I cannot sort of point any accusing <laughs> finger. Uh, our West's history of Western Europe has been extraordinarily intolerant with the history of crusades, inquisitions, persecutions. In the West, we've not only been, not able, a, been able to tolerate uh, rival religions such as Judaism and Islam, but we haven't even been able to live side by side with people who are, who are Christians but who have different opinions from ourselves. Well, it, it did occur to me, as it must have occurred to you, that this book, A History of God, is exactly what is behind so much of that violence over the, the centuries, is that everybody has, you, you've got a group of people decide, this is what we've decided God is. And if yes. you don't believe that, off with your head. And one of the dangers with monotheism is that we have a personal notion of God. And it's very easy to make God in, into a personality like ourselves, writ large, with likes and dislikes similar to our own, and therefore make him endorse all our particular prejudices. So we can make God into a, um, a Republican or a Democrat or even a racist. Uh, the Crusaders, for example, went into battle to kill Muslims and Jews with the cry, God wills it, on their lips. What they'd done was project their own hatred and fear of these rival religions onto the deity um, and make him give a sacred seal of divine approval to their own prejudices, and thus creating a god in their own image and likeness. Is it wrong, then, for... For Jews to consider themselves God's chosen people? Uh, those kind of theologies have often led to this, this type of uh, exclusivity, but not necessarily, because the prophets reminded Israel that being chosen didn't mean just mean privilege, it meant responsibility. Responsibility to live in a just and exemplary way, and to treat the poor people and the vulnerable people in their own society uh, decently. Is there one true hallmark of a true God? Yes, and that hasn't been a doctrine. Uh, it's been a practice. All the major world religions insist that a, an authentic religious experience must result in compassion. This is the, was the message of the prophets of Israel who said that God did not desire, desire sacrifice in the temple, but that the poor people of society were treated decently. Um, and this has continued to be, it's full, the New Testament is full of this insight that charity is more important than the law, um, and that, uh, and that if you have faith that can move mountains but have not charity it profits you nothing and similarly Islam is driven very much by the same imperative so that I think uh, often you hear monotheists uh, very fervently uh, preaching their doctrine of God but often in a way that's very uncharitable to others it's not really possible to combine um, a, an authentic belief in God with remarks that denigrate people who belong to other races or have other rival ideologies or ideas from our from ourselves. Karen Armstrong is 77 now. In 2014, she was made an honorary doctor of divinity at McGill University. And you can find easy Amazon links to Karen Armstrong's books at our website, heardeverything.com. And while you're at heardeverything.com, 
Be sure to listen to my interviews with two well-known American clergymen, the Reverend Robert Schuler. I think there's life after this life. I really believe that. The human being is the only animal that's been able to conceive of that fantastic, immense, infinite possibility. And incredible human creativity almost always is scientifically reality. And the Reverend Jim Baker. I had been preaching a gospel of uh, prosperity, but God has nothing to do with material things as far as I'm concerned today. You know, whether you're rich or poor, God loves you the same. And, of course, we post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find Now I've Heard Everything on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, the woman who became a hero to many, but an enemy to many others, for her outspoken opposition to war during the George W. Bush administration. My 2006 interview with Cindy Sheehan. I'm not really political. People will say you're a left-wing Democrat. But I believe that this cause is not political. It's a matter of right and wrong and not a matter of right and left. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Thompson.